talking about? Well, we're talking about the Bible. Sin. I'm against it. That's, okay. By the way, Revelation has 22 chapters. We're halfway. Okay? So, for whatever that means. Because, okay, uh, you, you buy a house. You buy a house out in the country. Something you've wanted to do. You buy five acres, right? You're not going to farm. You just want a place. You want to have some horses. Uh, you want to have your five acres. And you get out there, and in, in addition to five acres for your horses, you want a fenced yard for your kids. Makes sense. So you go out to measure you, the area you're going to fence in because you need to buy material. Well, you own five acres. You could measure the whole five acres, but, but about 98% of this five acres is totally irrelevant because you want to fence off this area that's going to turn out to be about 30 by 50 or 30 by 40 or something like that. The only part that's relevant to you is the part that's going to keep your kids safe. That's the part that's relevant. That's the part that you measure because you're building a fence for your kids. When we read what's going on here in, in Revelation 11, we find him measuring off the temple. And he's not to measure off the temple courts because that's for the Gentiles who are outside. He's measuring what's inside. Let me read this. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. They didn't have tape measures. It's too bad. Uh, I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And, and we'll go on to cover verse 4 in here too. But, but uh, he, he's saying measure the temple, temple, but don't bother with the temple courts because that's being trampled by the Gentiles. It's not relevant to what I'm doing. Uh, because it's being trampled for the gen by the Gentiles. It doesn't matter how much is out there. You matter the area that, where the kids are. <laughs> you, matter the, you, you measure the area that's relevant. So today's passage, John is told to measure the temple and the altar and those who worship there, but not to bother with the temple courts. Uh, those who go to the holy there are those who go to the holy city to worship but what they're worshiping is not God. Our scripture reading today, we read that passage out of Joshua. All the people were following Joshua. All the people were in the promised land. And he says, choose today whom you're going to serve, these gods or the God. And the people all say, after discussing it, yeah, we will serve God. And that, that's the call that we find here. So I want to start out with a, a timeline refresher. Okay, so if you guys can throw that PowerPoint up here. This is one we've seen before, and we're going to uh, kind of refresh and add to it a little bit. Just to get you, that's a line, okay? That's a timeline, <laughs> okay? This is the part we've seen before. You, you have a seven, my little thing didn't go up there. That's what I was looking for. Okay, you have, you have your seven-year thing. That represents the tribulation period, the seven-year tribulation and we've looked at this before. The, the number one, the tribulation starts when the Antichrist signs the peace treaty with Israel. He is the first horseman of Revelation chapter 6, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. He comes out looking like a champion. He's going to turn out to be a scum. Uh, in, in, at point two, halfway through this, he breaks the treaty. Let me read two passages. By the way, we're going to be uh, in the Old Testament. We're going to be in Zechariah. We're going to be in Daniel. We're going to be in Malachi. So just in case those scare you, let me tell you, if you go to Matthew and go one page back, 
you found the passage we're looking for in Malachi. <laughs> and if you go about three pages back from that, you found the passage we're looking for in Zechariah. So it's not going to be as hard or scary as it sounds. Uh, Daniel is Daniel 9.27, which is something uh, that uh, we're just going to keep visiting, uh, like it or not, as we go through here. Uh, but Daniel chapter 9.27 describes this 70th year of Daniel. Uh, it describes the Antichrist and his breaking, establishing and breaking the treaty. And I'm doing this with the light off in my bad eyes. And it says, And he shall make a strong covenant with one, or covenant with many, for one week. And for half the week uh, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing, uh, and on the, excuse me, I need the light. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. Uh, I'll start at the start. It's a novel concept. Um, and he shall make a strong covenant with the many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. The decreed end is poured out on the desolate. And we find that half, he, he makes a treaty for one week, right? He makes a seven-year treaty, but halfway through he's going to break the treaty, and we're going to find this thing called the abomination of desolation. So then we turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, New Testament explanation of what's going on, and we read about this character who is not here called the Antichrist, he's called the man of lawlessness, and he's clearly filling the bill. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Okay, so we find that this thing that is prophesied in Daniel is described in 2 Thessalonians. Thessalonians, and it is the Antichrist breaking the treaty and declaring himself to be God as he sits. That is the abomination of desolation. It is an abomination that a person would sit on the temple of God and say, it's, this is my building, right? That, that is essentially what he's doing. I'm the one you came to treaty or came to, to, uh, to honor, and, and many people are not going to get along well with that. But this is all happening uh, during that. That will happen there, and the Seven seals that we find in Revelation 6, where a quarter of the world is going to perish, happen over this three-and-a-half-year period, or appear to, okay? Because a lot of things change here when he does this. And this is where we're moving on in the, the uh, description we have here. We, we're moving on to the second three-and-a-half years, which, as you see, ends just slightly before then, because we're going to have the seven bowls of wrath, uh, which are, seem to be linked with the seventh uh, trumpet. And so we have the seven trumpets going on here and the things we've read about, the earthquakes, the blackness, the mountain thrown into the sea, the locusts that have the horrible sting that lasts for five months or seven months, I can't remember. Uh, and we have, at this is the point, we haven't talked about the mark of the beast yet, but this is going to be over this period of time. The two witnesses that we're talking about to now are over this part of the time. There, there's a woman who goes and hides in the wilderness that, that represents Israel, and I didn't write that down because I thought it's too complicated, uh, but we'll look at that. The seven thunders probably happen right about here. Uh, my five didn't show up. There you go. The seven thunders that, that happen towards the end between the sixth trumpet and the seventh are going to be right there at the end, whatever they are. And all this is happening in this second half. Okay, now this is relevant to what we're doing because we find this phrase, these numbers that talk about the second half. 
right? Back again in Revelation chapter 11, we have uh, the holy city, verse, verse 2. It is given over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. Okay, and I will grant authority to the two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. The seven trumpets take up most of the second half. Okay, they finish in time for the seven woes that are going to happen very quickly at the very end, and end the seven-year tribulation. Okay, what happens is the Gentiles are going to trample the city for 42 months. The two witnesses are going to prophesy for 1,260 days, and if you are a mathematician... If you are inclined to sit there and you crunch numbers and you're really good at it, you're already saying, that doesn't work. The math doesn't work. Let me do the math for you. I got my calculator out because this is, this is not that easy. But 42 months, if you divide that by 12, it's three and a half years. That's no problem. But if you take, 12, or if you take three and a half years and divide it by two, you do not get 1,260. You get 1,277.5. And you go, well, what did he do with the extra uh, two and a half weeks, <laughs> right? Where, where did they go? And your, your mind, because you're trying to make this work mathematically, and, and you are an accountant, sorry, Dick, or you are, uh, you know, you are just, you work, look for that kind of mathematical precision in what you do. You say, something's wrong with what's going on here. Why are they, prop- why is this going on for 42 months, but this only for 1,260 days? And, and uh, what's happening is, is we, we're looking for something that shouldn't be there. Don't agonize over that. You can agonize and try to figure out something to work the numbers, or you can simply say, in prophecy, 30 days represents a month. (laughs) You go, that would be really simpler. You know what you're doing is you're trying to figure out why the eyebrows aren't on the Mona Lisa, right? Everybody looks at the Mona Lisa. I don't think the Mona Lisa would be a famous painting if she had eyebrows. She'd just be another painting, right? One of many, many, many paintings. I think uh, Vincent van Gogh, is that Mona Lisa? Leonardo da Vinci, you know, one of those Italian guys. <laughs> Wait, Van Gogh wasn't... Anyway, you know what I'm saying. Leonardo da Vinci, I think he had a marketing uh, agent who said, you know what? Take something off. And, and, and Because if you make her right, she's just like everybody else. But if you take something off, this will be famous. And he says, you've got to be kidding me. I take something, he says, oh, he painted over the eyebrows. <laughs> he says, what do you think? Uh, it might work. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. It, it wasn't perfect, but and yet the point being, sorry, that there is a point to this. The point being that, that uh, if we look at this in terms of, of a precision, the kind of mathematical precision we look for today, it's not going to work. But if we look for it for what is it meaning, what is he obviously trying? to say by this, we get meaning. We, we need to look at this like a piece of art, not like a math assignment. Okay, he's not doing that. He is giving us a, 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 a phrase that means something, and we find this phrase, I know I've talked about this before, as we look through these passages, uh, we see here, Jerusalem trampled 42 months, two witnesses, 1,265, or 260 days. If we move ahead to chapter 12, verse 6, uh, we find this. Uh, This is the woman I talked about. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished 1,260 days. We move forward a little bit uh, to uh, chapter 12, verse 14. And it says, uh, But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. 
And so 1260 equals time, time, and half a time. And you can go, okay, well, it's easy. It's 42 months. All these are equal way, e different ways of describing the exact same time period, this, this three-and-a-half-year time period where these are happening. And they're described in different ways. I don't know why. Same reason Mona Lisa doesn't have eyebrows. It's just the way it was. In 13.5, we find the beast is given authority for 42 months. They're the same amount of time, and I believe they are the same time. I, I've shared this before. I think this is another way of saying at the same time or in the meantime, because we are looking at worldwide events that cover everything, and anything you're going to read that's covering, that's going to try to fulfill all the major things going on in the world at the same time, you're going to have to look at what's happening over in the Americas, and you're going to have to look at what's happening in Europe, and you're going to have to look at what's happening in China, and you're going to have to say, well, by the way, in Cameroon, they're having warfare as the English speakers are trying to secede from the nation. And, and, and uh, they, there's, there's no way you can get it all in one picture. And we are looking in the events of Revelation, and it's, you can't get it all in one picture. So it says, during this three-and-a-half-year period, this is happening at the temple. Uh, this is happening at the temple. And so this three-and-a-half-year period makes the most sense as we look at this second half of the tribulation. It's, it's, we're all going on in this time. So they're all events happening at the midpoint, set into motion, when the Antichrist takes his seat on, the, on, the, on a throne in the temple and claims to be God, and it sets things both on earth and in heaven in motion, and, and everything changes. Okay, So we move on to verse 4, and we're going to look at these two witnesses. We're going to look at, at more who they are rather than what they do. Next week, we're going to be looking at what they do. But right now, who they are. Verse 4, these, these two witnesses that he mentions in chapter 3. I will grant authority to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Okay, two witnesses who are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And it's written as if that means something to us. <laughs> it's written as if we're supposed to say, oh, I get it. I know who those are. And, and, and we go, oh, those two. Yeah, I know who they are. And speculation about these two guys abounds. Okay, uh, one is simply these are two people who God will raise up and place in this position at that time. Uh, now, that's actually the, the least favorite option that's out there, the least popular one, because we love to speculate that these are Moses and Elijah, or these are Moses and Enoch, uh, or these are Joshua and Zerubbabel. Right? You guys have all speculated that these are Joshua and Zerubbabel, right? <laughs> We're going to meet Joshua and Zerubbabel, and you're going to go, oh, wow. That sounds like it's Joshua and Zerubbabel. <laughs> and you go, is Zerubbabel a real name? How do you spell it? I'll tell you. Two B's first, one B second. Okay. It, it helps me. Okay. <laughs> uh, in many ways, this idea that there's simply two people who God is going to raise up and place in this position of being the two prophets is, is the most likely because it's the simplest answer. It's the simplest explanation. And the simplest explanation is the most, most likely to be true. It often isn't because life gets complicated, but, but it's the most likely to be the right answer. Uh, it, it answers uh, the, the questions. And not many people, uh, not, people don't like that theory, largely because it's boring. It's not fun. There's no speculation. It's just, oh, okay, well, God's going to raise up a couple guys. Uh, it's not fun. But there, there are good reasons to think it's not. First of all, it talks about the two as if we are to know who, the, who he's talking about as if these are people who are supposed to make sense, who are supposed to say, oh, those two. Uh, if it's two new prophets, 
uh, then, then uh, it's like, how would we know them? How would we be expecting them? Uh, so that one has just, that theory has never really gained traction. Uh, the most popular ones are saying these are Enoch and, and Elijah or Enoch and Moses. Enoch and Elijah are, have something in common. They are the two people in the Bible who never died. If, if you go to 2 Kings chapter 2, you read where uh, e- Elijah was taken up to heaven in the chariot of God, right? And, and, and he, was, he was taken up and he, was, he, was, uh, he never had to die. He was taken up in a special way. Enoch, in the Old Testament, simply says he walked with God and was not because God took him. And we go, okay, I'm not sure what that means. But in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, it makes clear that Enoch didn't die either. That, that uh, Let me uh, see if I have that written out. It would save uh, Hebrews 11.5. Let me flip back for a second. Hebrews 11.5 tells us, uh, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Okay, so it's real easy and obvious. Enoch never died. Elijah never died. You go, hmm, two guys that never died. There's only two guys in the Bible who never died. Uh, everybody else that we find in the Bible, either it tells us they died or we just assume they did. I mean, because we're never told that, uh, I know we're never told when Cain died. You guys think he's still running around? <laughs> you know, is it just, they're all dead. Everybody in the Bible's dead except for these two guys who went to heaven without dying. And so they would be the ones who came back that God had a place for. Uh, now, that, that's not a bad theory, except we never read anything fun about Enoch, except, except that he walked with God. We never read about Enoch doing any miracles. We never read about Enoch coming back in some way. But Moses, on the other hand, if you turn to, to you can find it in, in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you find where Jesus went up to pray on a mount we call the Mount of Transfiguration. And while he was there, Peter, James, and John went with him. And they're up there, and they, they see Jesus glorified speaking with two men, Moses and Elijah. And because we see them speaking with Moses and Elijah, it, it makes it real easy to see God has set these two men apart in a special way. Uh, and so it's easy to speculate that it's, it's Moses and Elijah. The miracles that we see these guys doing, they can call down fire from heaven. That's an Elijah thing. They turn water to blood. That's a Moses thing. All right? And so they fit real, real easily the description of what these, guys, what these two men have done. So it's real easy to speculate Moses and Elijah have come back. Uh, Elijah, by the way, was prophesied that, that he would be back. If you, remember I said Malachi? Go back to the start of, of Matthew and turn back one page and look at the very last two verses of the Old Testament. Right? Uh, you, you, it, it's easy to say, I don't know my way around the minor prophets or I don't know my way around the Bible that well. It's, it's hard to excuse not being able to find the end of the book. <laughs> okay, The end of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the last two verses of the Old Testament prophesy Elijah is coming back. Okay, uh, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And I'm so disappointed this translation says destruction. 
Because chances are, if you're looking in your Bible, and it's not this version, it ends with the word curse. And it's so usually symbolic that the Old Testament ends with a curse. Uh, and, and, but other than that, the, the statement it's making as it ends is, is that Elijah is going to come back. So it's, it makes it really popular to look at these two as Elijah and somebody for, for so many reasons. And, and so we see Elijah and Moses, uh, in my mind, are the leading candidates. Uh, you may say someone else, but let's talk about Joshua and Zerubbabel. And, you, and you're going, Steve, you keep saying that name. I think you made it up. Okay. I, I, I can't believe I flipped back to Revelation because when I was Malachi, I was almost there. Okay, backwards about three pages, maybe four or five, depends on the size of print you have. My print's a little bit larger than most of you have. <laughs> okay, in, in the history of Israel, there, there's a time that most of us don't know a whole lot about. Israel was taken captive in the time of Daniel, right? In the time of Daniel, they were taken captive into Babylon. It's called the exile. Or the, uh, and, and so they're in exile in Babylon. And towards the end of the book of Daniel, Daniel realized that the 70 years that God had said they would be there are over. Daniel's an old man, and he starts praying for them to be returned. Okay, Daniel himself does not come back, but a large group of Israelites are sent back to Israel at that time. They have a political leader who's leading them, a, a descendant of, of uh, David. He is in the line of geneal uh, the genealogy of Jesus in both the Gospel of Luke and in Matthew. And if you know anything about those two genealogies, you know they're different. And they, come, they start with David, they come down the list, they combine it, Zerubbabel, for two generations, and they split again. And you go, how can that happen? Well, I think it has to involve an adoption uh, or something like that at one point, uh, some, a foster kind of care, political something. But uh, it, it, it can work. Uh, but they both converge on this guy, Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was the political leader who led Israel back to the promised land after 70 years of, of exile. Joshua was the high priest who led the people of Israel back to the promised land after 70 years of exile. And they are the two that led the people in rebuilding the temple at that time. And so when we take it and we start looking at you start going, wow. Because when we look at, at what we're reading in Revelation, we realize there's got to be a temple. This te has to be a brand new, newly built temple. Somebody has to lead in the doing of that. And you go, hmm, these guys fit the description. Now, now uh, I'm keeping a finger in Zechariah and flipping back once more to, to uh, Revelation. Let me read this description of the two guys. Uh, verse, verses 3 and 4. And I will grant... Uh, authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Okay, so let's back up a little bit. I'm going to read to you, and this may take uh, a long time, bear with me, Zechariah 3, which will tell us about Joshua, and Zechariah 4, which will tell us about Zerubbabel. Okay. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at the right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in, with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you. I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let him put on a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. 
The angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of my ho- the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. I will give you the right of access among those who are standing there. He's given authority in the courts of the temple. Hear o, now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. From behold, for behold, on the stone that I have set before you, before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will grave an inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. That's Joshua the high priest, uh, who is, is, is clothed and is, seems to be a picture of Christ as we read this. We move on to chapter 4, and we have Zerubbabel. And the angel talk, who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who was wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I see, behold, a lampstand all of gold. A lampstand. <laughs> Remember Revelation 11? I see a lampstand all of gold with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven lips at each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace grace to it. And we find these phrases, the the lampstands and the olive trees, we find Joshua and Zerubbabel. Then the word of the Lord came to me again, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range throughout the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes, with the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, Do you not know? Uh, what these are. I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And so it's like, it's like I, I apologize for reading such long passages, but you see that those passages describe these two very clearly as, as in the same descriptions uh, that we find in Revelation chapter 11, talking about the two anointed ones, the two lampstands, the two olive trees. And in, in Zechariah, it's clearly describing Zerubbabel and Joshua. And uh, we go, okay, what do we do with this? Is it saying Zerubbabel and Joshua are coming back? Well, I'm going to tell you, I still like the theories of Moses and Elijah. <laughs> but Zerubbabel and Joshua maybe tell us a lot about what's going to be happening here and what's going to be going on. Because Zerubbabel was a political leader. Joshua was a religious leader. And by the way, you, you want a little uh, preaching on the side here? Uh, Zerubbabel is not less godly than Joshua because Joshua is a high priest and Zerubbabel is a political leader. Godliness is not summed up in what you do professionally or in your official position. Godliness is summed up in your character, right? Zerubbabel was a godly political leader that God used and was pleased to call one of his lampstands. Joshua was a religious leader who was godly, and God was pleased to call and do that. And, and there were other religious leaders, by the way, who did not get that position, <laughs> And probably didn't deserve it. And there are other political leaders who didn't deserve it. And it's not in what they did. It's in their godly character that they had. And God is not concerned about your official job. He is concerned about your character. Uh, so these two men 
I don't think they're, they're coming back, but I think they are a picture, one of those double prophecies we find. And they're a picture of what's going on. I wouldn't be surprised at all if, if, if there are two men who are going to lead Israel at this time in the building of the temple. And the rest of Israel, by the way, is going to be led off and protected. We're going to see that as we move on in, in, in uh, the woman that we talked about. Uh, but these two are going to stay at the temple, and they are going to prophesy. And whether they are Moses and Elijah, Moses would be the political leader. Elijah would be the religious leader. They fit the description really well. Whoever they are, I think that's what they're going to do. Okay, They're going to bring the people back. Uh, an important detail to remember, though, when we start talking about character, and it's a, it's a minor detail and could easily get mixed, missed. Verse 3, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Might be the most important part of the description of these two men over everything else that we read, is that they're clothed in sackcloth. They're not having fun. right? And you think about it, if two guys could have fun basking in their power, right? in Jesus' name, I blast you. <laughs> if they were inclined to do that. If they were inclined to have fun blasting their enemies, wouldn't it be nice? Admit it. There are times when you would like that power. <laughs> <laughs> now, there are times when we are more mature and responsible, but there are times when it would sure be nice to have the power to say, I smite my enemies, fire come out, and they're gone. And it would be a wonderful thing. But these men are dressed in sackcloth, and sackcloth is a visible representation of the grief of the heart. Sackcloth, is, this is not an outward thing that they're just doing to put on a pretense. They, this is picturing the grief that these men really feel, feel as they're doing this. They don't enjoy this. We, we see them undefeated. We see them unstoppable. Why are they grieving? Well, the same reason you would grieve over any loss. The same reason you would grieve or maybe have grieved, maybe I should say probably have grieved, over people that you know that refuse Christ. It's small comfort to be able to say, well, I told them. It, it does not make you feel better. Your conscience is clean, but who really cares a lot about that? It's better than not having a conscience clean. But the comfort is when they listen. And these two men are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before God, and no one can stop them, but no one's listening to them either. The world knows they're there. The world hates them. And when it says, as we go down, we start talking about, you know, next week we start looking about what they do, we'll find that they do do some of these things that it says they can do. Meaning they are defending themselves. They are speaking and doing things in God's name. But the people only hate them for it. They're not listening to what they say. So let's go back to Jerusalem not being measured. Don't measure the temple courts. Why? Because it doesn't count. They don't count. They're irrelevant. He's measuring off the area of worship. And the temple courts are not part of the area of worship. They're supposed to be part of the area of worship, but they're not. There are lots of people there, but few people are worshiping God. Jerusalem is today the religious center of the world. Jerusalem is claimed as a holy city by Christians, by Jews, and by Muslims. All three, there is no other city like it in the world even today. Think about what it will be like then. Because you'll have a new one. You'll have the Antichrist sit down and say, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who's supposed to be seated there. And he will have a tremendous amount of followers who will just glom onto that and say yes. And they will make it their religious city too. Does that mean anything? 
to God? He says, no, don't measure that part because that doesn't matter. Uh, it will become a city for all sorts of religious things. Religious people who don't worship God will flock to Jerusalem in droves. And they will be in Jerusalem and they will be calling it their holy city and it won't mean anything because they don't worship God. And they will trample the temple courts, but they will not get the temple. Because these two witnesses are going to be there and God is with them. Right? They will trample the temple courts. They will not get the temple. Measure the temple because it counts. Don't measure everything else because it doesn't count. The truth of God will still be there. If you were a visitor to Jerusalem in those days, right? You're just somebody, you haven't staked your claim yet. I don't know how anybody's going to at that point not have staked your claim. But if you were, you could find your way to the truth. You could find your way to the temple and you could hear the two prophets. But imagine what you'd have to go through to get there. Imagine all the lies, all the false belief, all the false teachings, all the deceit, all the evil you would have to work your way through to get there to hear the truth, the message that these two guys are proclaiming. It would not be an easy thing to accomplish. It would not be easy to do. Uh, but you could. Well, this is real. It's what happens today. This is what I mean. This is real. It, it's important thing. Some people and, and, and the problem the problem I have because I study this stuff is as you study it, you find all sorts of people who don't believe it and are explaining it away in all sorts of ways and, and making everything. You know, there's a lot of symbolism in here. They say, well, this is symbolic of this and that, but it's not going to literally happen. Well, here's the funny thing, is something can be both symbolic and true, right? I have a wedding ring on my finger. It is symbolic of my marriage, which is more than 28 years. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but you know what? I don't merely have a symbol of being married. I'm really married, right? It's both symbolic and it's true. Well, God is, imagine that, God can do that. God has symbolism in this passage. Well, what would be the symbolism, because as I keep repeating and I'm going to hammer and hammer, is Revelation is about the future, but it's for now, for, constantly for now. I don't care when in history or in the future you read this, it's always for now, right? It, it, it applies now. Well, what does it have to do with now? That, that uh, the, the truth of Christianity is being trampled by the Gentiles. Right? And by the Gentiles, I don't mean non-Jews. I mean people who don't believe but somehow seem to have, feel they have a claim on the truth and get to say they, it means what they want it to mean. And the truth uh, of, of Christ is being trampled by the Gentiles, uh, people who have not trusted and are not following Christ but are somehow religious. And the truth is there, but it's not easy to find. Because for everyone proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ, there seems to be a whole bunch of people out there claiming false things, or close to true things, or kind of true things, or good-sounding things, or sometimes things completely contrary, and you have to make your way through all of that to find truth. And so I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm saying, saying uh, what I'm saying is true. <laughs> you go, okay, you're one of many. Why would I believe you? Well, the answer's right here. You know, this book is open. Uh, hopefully yours is too. And hopefully you see what is being said is true with this. message today is called The Divided Temple. All right, that's the title I put on it. The truth is the temple is not divided. The temple is true. But the people around the temple are divided. There is the temple and there is everything outside the temple. Root word for sin, the, the Greek word for sin, you may have heard this, is, is, is a word that means hitting the, or missing the target. 
You take a bullseye, you put it up there, and you have that solid red or black center, and then you have the white, and then the color again, the white. And, well, anything that doesn't hit the bullseye is a miss. And if you're like me, right, some of you guys, you get that, those bullets, this tight little clump. I miss all over the place. <laughs> you, know, you guys have seen my shooting. I, I miss all over the place. We go to the rendezvous, and my bull, I got some up there and some down there. And, and, and how come you shot six times, but I only see four holes? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it doesn't matter which way you miss. You miss. That's what's going on in, in, in what we call teaching about Jesus Christ today, is that people are missing everywhere. And it's hard to know what's the truth. Uh, I want to say that stuff outside doesn't even get measured. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Make sure that you are following the word of God. And as we saw in our scripture reading today with Joshua and the people, they declared. They declared. Uh, as for these other people, I don't know what they're going to do. But as for me and my house, we will follow the Lord. Okay? Make that your claim today. Don't be distracted. Don't be dissuaded. Don't be misled. Don't allow it to happen. Whatever those other people are doing, as for you and your house, you will follow the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word, and, and I thank you for this message, and, and I thank you for these two men, Lord, who will stand boldly for you when the world is against them. Father, as they will do then, let us do now, and stand faithfully and boldly for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.